As the name implies, they go into tribal areas. That's why we have this beautiful backdrop here. This was from where you were, used to work. And this is the actual picture that he took from where he used to live and work in Papua New Guinea. He was there for many years and has a great deal of experience to share with us. Um, he also is representing Waiyumi. Look it up if you want on your computer, W-A-Y-U-M-I. It's a wonderful camp uh, north, uh, north of Harrisburg that shows how it looks like and feels like to live in an actual tribe. When you're there, you think you're in the middle of the jungle. Um, it was introduced to us by Emily Rischel. Uh, she and my wife and I went up there uh, for a weekend, and it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place for families to go, for youth groups, and it really gives you a wonderful experience of what it means to live in the jungle. David, would you come and share with us this morning? Welcome to my living room. <laughs> this was home for us for quite a long time, and uh, we're happy to be back home here, but we would rather be there. Uh, if I were there, I would not be dressed the way I am today. I feel a little uncomfortable in a suit, but, uh, you know, we have a courtesy in America that says, no shoes, no shirt, you finish it. <laughs> no service. We knew you wanted to have a service today, so I donned the outfit. But uh, I want to talk about this engaging on the edge. Maybe you're wondering, what is engaging on the edge? You know, the church for generations has pushed forward. And they push forward in establishing churches. There are specific regions of the world where the church has not pushed forward. And what we are doing is engaging on the edge and going beyond that to bring the gospel to people. Let me illustrate it this way. Years ago, when I was in York County in the workaday world, more than 40 years ago, I passed a little church. I deemed it First Church of the Frigidaire. It was dead as a doornail, liberal message. And I came by one day, and they had the verse there, Proverbs 29, 18. You know that verse? It says, where there is no vision, you finish it. The people perish. It was in the summer, it was hot, those stick-up letters don't always stay in place. And by the end of the week when I came by, the letter W had fallen down inside. You see what it said? Here there is no vision, the people perish. That's the sad fate of a church. But you know, if we went to the scriptures and looked at the literal translation of Proverbs 29:18, it, it says, where there is no revelation of truth, People cast off restraint. Engaging beyond the edge is no restraint. There is no revelation of truth. And that's why we as an organization, now known as Ethnos 360, 
have purpose to go and bring the gospel to people in regions of the world, such as where we work. Let me just do a little brief introduction here. Before I go into introducing ourselves, David mentioned Wyumi. Out on my table is a little pamphlet. There's a little card you can pick up either, but it is a wonderful, engaging experience, much like going into a village like this and having the opportunity to embrace uh, um, language and culture among some people from Venezuela. Very, very educational, and we did not create it as a recruiting tool. Rather, we did it to bring people into an understanding of what it takes to reach those with the gospel. My presentation I do with you this morning, I put together specifically for you to see just how practical and easy it is to embrace elements of missions. Uh, this is my wife and I. She's not with me today. She had a kidney transplant 15 years ago. That's why we left the field. And with the coronavirus and the fact that I'm going to be moving her to Arizona in a few weeks to walk our daughter through a kidney transplant, we decided it's probably not best for her to be out in public with the coronavirus going on. Uh, but uh, we've been married 45 years, coming up on our 46th year. Uh, we've been in ministry 43 years, three of those in York County doing discipleship and evangelism, and now serving in our 40th year with Ethnos 360, as David said, known as New Tribes Mission. And uh, our daughter lives in Arizona. This is she and her hubby. And we are privileged to have five grandchildren. Uh, we're going to be flying there the 14th of April. And on the 15th, our oldest turns 15. Haven't celebrated a birthday with that boy since he was nine, and he's now taller than I am. Of course, that's not saying much. I, I don't have much stature. And then we have this little office helper, our administrator there in York, and he'll be also moving to Arizona with us. But as an organization, Ethnos 360, our purpose is to establish thriving churches in area of the world where there is no church. Uh, Ethnos being from the New Testament where uh, Joseph had talked to this, us this morning in Matthew chapter 28 about all nations. When you look at scripture and you see the word nations, you see the word tribes, you see tongues, you see languages, that comes from a root word called ethnos. Ethnos is where we get our English word ethnicity. So our purpose and desire is to reach every ethnicity of the world, to make sure that they have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And then 360 being that we're global. Someone said 360, does that include the USA? And it does. And we particularly had a family we were going to locate in a region of the world where there are 28 million people of a particular people group. But because they have a young child that has a disease and they could go there and work, they would have some hardships. We found out that there are 40,000 of that people group living in one of our states here in America, and we have now placed them there. So we do have missionaries laboring among unengaged and unreached people right here in America. My wife and I had the privilege of serving in Papua New Guinea. We really didn't want to go to Papua New Guinea, but God began to prompt our hearts that way. We sat through a chapel service one day, and a gentleman was there from the country of Papua New Guinea, and he was talking about cannibalism. And we were so enthralled with what he was saying that we turned to one another and out loud during that chapel session said, we will never go there. And the speaker stopped speaking, and we got all red and embarrassed and walked out. But, you know, 
As we began to engage with things that we were hearing about the country of Papua New Guinea, about people desiring to hear the gospel, God softened our hearts toward that, and we ended up going to the country of Papua New Guinea. And the first tribe that we worked in were actual former headhunting cannibals. Go figure. Okay, but God placed us there, and we ministered in that tribe. And later, we uprooted from there, and we moved to a small island, and we reached out to a people group called the Loco. You know what Loco means in Spanish, don't you? Crazy, okay? They are not the crazy people. We put out a newsletter saying, we've gone Loco. And uh, it was our privilege to go minister among those folks. But I want to talk with you just a little bit about where this all began. Back when I was a 16-year-old, I met a young lady, and this young girl said to me on our third date, she said, if our relationship became lifelong, would you consider being a missionary? Now, put yourself in the context of a 16-year-old with a girl, and you're not thinking at all about lifelong relationship. You just want to hang out with girls, you know? And she asked this question. It was like, my goodness, I've got to give her an answer. And all kinds of things went through my head. And you know what I said? Sure, but guess what? <laughs> I lied, <laughs> okay? I went home and I said to my mom, hey, what, what's a missionary? And, uh, but I was really interested in that gal, and I dated her for three and a half years, and at 20 years of age, we married. So we've been together a good long time. But my vision of a missionary was this. I thought it was a 97-year-old lady that weighed about 81 pounds and carried a Bible big enough to beat a dog. That was my focus. I had no idea what a missionary was uh, in today's terms. But this is what we looked like when the journey began. Yeah, I had some hair back then. wish I had it now. A little cold out there. And uh, this is us not too long ago, but God brought us together in relationship. And uh, I won't talk much about that because there's a story that's closed with that, but I don't want to go there today. But what really motivated us was when I came to faith in Christ, the pastor who discipled me, my wife and I met with him eight and a half hours a week uh, for a year and a half. And the very first night, he said, you've got to share Christ with someone immediately. If you don't do it, you'll never do it. I didn't know any better. So the next day on the way into the corporation I work for, I met a man on the walkway, and I confronted him about his eternity. And he said, you know, people have been talking to me for years about salvation in Christ I know and I understand the gospel, but no one has ever confronted me on making that choice. And he wanted to do it right there, 6.30 in the morning. I'm like, really? And it was really uh, an enthralling opportunity for me. I said, come back at lunch. I want to take you through the scriptures and show to you what was shown to me about the security of the believer. And we met over lunch, and uh, I opened the scriptures with him. And when we concluded, he said to me, what's next? And I said, I have no idea what's next, but my wife and I are meeting with a pastor tonight, so what he teaches me in discipleship, you come back tomorrow and I will teach you, but you know what? You need to reach someone for Christ as well. And four days later, he reached out to another that came to faith in Christ, and this element of discipleship began to birth itself. And we said, you know what? If each one would reach one and each one would teach one, we could see growth not adding up believers, but multiplying. So we engaged that, and within two months, I had 31 men meeting with me at the workplace doing discipleship, and we said, let's take that to our community. We had 26 families in our community, and we were able to reach out to 22 of those. 
amid that journey, amid that journey, God began to make our hearts sensitive to there's got to be something more we can do in serving Christ. And we had no idea what it was. We prayed about it. Uh, there was a missions conference coming up. I had never been to a missions conference. I went to it. My wife was home with our infant daughter who was ill at the time. And I came home that night and I said, you know what? We've been praying all these months. What more we can do? And I said, we can go serve in missions. And you know what she told me? She said, you're crazy. I'm like, I'm crazy. You're the one that asked me when we were dating if I would consider being a missionary. But what I had found was I had made her comfortable in a lifestyle, even though we were engaged in ministry in our county, I had made her comfortable in the lifestyle that we had, the nice things that we had, and she lost interest in that. And I thought, you know what? Either God's going to have to change her heart or change her wor his word uh, in light of us going and serving. And of course, we knew God was not going to change his word. He began to soften her heart. And I came home from work one day, and she's holding our daughter and crying. And I said, what's the matter? Is the baby ill? No, the baby's not ill. Are you having issues with your renal disease? No, I'm not having issues with that. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I've been looking around at our home and all the nice things that we have. And she said, I realize in light of eternity, these things one day will all burn and all I could lay at the feet of Jesus would be a pile of ashes. And I'm not getting it. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, let's go get the souls of lost people. And that was a turning point where we began to pursue uh, this journey in missions. And this is a verse that really stimulated it. Paul's desire was to go where the gospel was never proclaimed. We looked at 23 mission organizations. Out of the 23, there were three who were going to the totally unengaged people of the world. The other 20 were going to areas of the world where there were churches and Bibles and Christians. And we said, you know, we want to go give those people an opportunity to hear the gospel who otherwise wouldn't hear. We don't have a problem with the other organizations doing what they do, but this was the desire that God had purposed in our heart, and so we set out to do that. And what I want to do is build from here a vision for you, but one of the things I get quite often is, are there unreached people in the world today? Let me take you to a brief video about that. Darkness. Millions of people live in it every day. People who have not heard or seen the light of the gospel. They worship gods they fear, spirits who control them. They perform rituals and sacrifices to protect them from their neighbors, to get enough food for another day, to survive illness and injury. There are millions of them, millions of men, women, and children, tribal people all across the world, in remote, never-before-reached places of the earth, isolated, with no access to salvation in Jesus, living in darkness, despair, a life without hope. Thousands die every day without the opportunity to hear the gospel, to know the light and life that is Jesus Christ. Is this our responsibility? Could this be our darkness as well? Reach into the darkness. Reach to those with no opportunity to know Jesus. Expanding the reach of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. All 
I don't know if you picked up on that phrase, could this be our darkness as well? When we moved in among the Powaya tribe and seeing the darkness that those people lived in, we realized that their eternal fate was not uh, the choice that we had of choosing Christ because no one ever brought them the gospel. And we began to look at their fate of being cast into eternity with no knowledge of Christ, not as their fate, but as our failure to come soon enough to bring the gospel because thousands of them had died and, and gone into a Christless eternity. But I want to look at our changing world today. There's over 7 billion people on planet Earth. That's a lot of people when you begin to think about it. Out of the 7 billion people, there are 6,912 languages spoken on Earth today. It's amazing when you go back to the Tower of Babel and realize there was only one language. But as a result of their rebellion, God scattered them upon the face of the earth. And not only did he scatter them upon the face of the earth, it says he confounded or confused their languages. And that's why we have languages today. Out of the 6,912 languages, there are 16,000 plus people groups. A people group is distinguished by their language and culture. And maybe you're wondering, if there's only 6,912 languages, how can it be this many people groups? But some of those languages, such as Spanish and French, are shared by different people groups throughout the world, same as with Portuguese. Out of that number, 6,958 people groups are unreached. Okay? Out of that number, uh, an unreached or least reached people group is a group of people among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize people groups without bringing in outside existence. That's why we are going to those that have no opportunity because there is no one living among them that can do that. Now, out of that 6,000 people groups that are unreached, over 3,200 of them are unengaged on reach. That means no one, absolutely no one, has ever entered their territory to bring the gospel to them. So the task remaining, if you look at it, among the unreached people groups of the world, less than 2% are Christian. Among the unengaged, there are no churches, no Bibles, no Christians, no opportunity for them to know Christ outside of someone coming to bring the gospel to them. That's 3.1 billion people who never heard of Jesus. It's hard to wrap your head around these numbers, but again, they exist. The country of Papua New Guinea is about the size of California. We have 863 languages spoken on that little island there. And the language and culture is distinctly different among each of those. What I want to do is build from here is what does it take to reach unreached and unengaged people? Well, for us... It meant after getting our, our Bible training, getting our Missions Institute training, after getting our language science skills under, under our belt, it meant going to a location of the world to find a people group. So we showed up at our mission headquarters base in the highlands of New Guinea. That probably looks to you like a flat piece of land. It's on a very steep incline, about 16%, in the heart of the Benabena tribe. There are 130,000 people of one particular tribal group surrounding that area, which we have reached. But our idea was we want to go beyond there to some territory of the country where we can reach out to a people group who have never been engaged with the gospel. Let me fly you over the jungle. What we did was get in our airplane, and we flew for a number of days back and forth over a particular stretch of the jungle, 
looking for smoke rising up through the jungle floor to see if we could identify a people group living out there. This is virgin rainforest. Very difficult to walk through. So we flew over and we did indeed see smoke rising up out of the jungle and we said there's people there. We want to reach those. So we took instrument readings from the airplane and then uh, we set out on foot about a month later to go find those people. We traveled interior as far as we could go on logging roads. What do you do when you come to a bridge like that? People like to steal boards off of the bridge. So you just get out and pick the boards up and move them so that you can get across. But not far beyond this point, there were no more roads and we had to get out and we had to go by foot. How many of you like to hike? How many really like to hike? Okay, I could take you on this hike and you would say, I never want to hike again in, in, in my life. But walking up through a valley floor like that, covered in razor grass, in the tropics, having to wear long trousers, long shirts, hats with mosquito netting over it so you wouldn't get cut, was a bit of a hardship. And not only was that a bit of a hardship, getting to a place where you come into a mountain pass and you are approached with a cliff that we later found out was over 2,000 feet high, picking our way down that cliff, working our way through the bush, getting swept uh, downriver as we would cross to find trail, not realizing upriver was a vine bridge we could have crossed, and uh, just some of the hardships. But you know, for ourselves, uh, in that region of the world, we found out that there are no yellow brick roads, <laughs> okay? It's a lot of hard hiking, uh, walking through streams, and one of the commodities that we have right now is some years later the Lord had given us a helicopter. So now instead of doing our survey work from the airplane and spotting where they are and then doing all the rigors of hiking in, we can actually go by helicopter and set right down in the village. The helicopter that you're going to see here is quite old, and at the present time we're looking to the Lord to raise up the resources to buy three helicopters because we are advancing the gospel in that many regions throughout Papua New Guinea that we need to employ three helicopters. That means we need mechanics. That means we need pilots. Let me put you in the helicopter and take you in over that journey that we had hiked. Rocket Tower, November Tango Hotel is north of beam, uh, 900,000, currently 7 miles. Estimating Grumman, 27. Rumbin, Madang, 6538, November Tango Hotel. be your choice. Hike that or take the helicopter. <laughs> I can tell you after doing that hike a number of times, we decided the helicopter is a wonderful commodity to have. But what do you do your first contact? You walk into the jungle, you walk for 77 hours, and you come upon a group of, of young warriors like this at the base of a waterfall, and you're thinking, wow, what do I do? You know, they're standing there with weapons. Do we approach them? What do we do? Our team made a bunch of noise, and when they turned and looked and saw our group, 
they dropped their weapons and they dove into the pool of water at the base of the waterfall. But one lone little man was standing there and he got a big grin on his face and he said something that we understood in the trade language. We later found out he had run away as a child and was uh, encountered by Australians who raised him and he learned the trade language and we believe God placed him there as a springboard of communication for us because we spoke the trade language at that time. And as we drew him out in question, we said, why did they jump into the, the pool of water? Well, he had coaxed them out. And the reason they jumped into the pool of water is they'd never seen people with our collar skin before, and they perceived this to be spirits of dead ancestors come back to life. <laughs> Think about that. And, of course, from there, conversation ensued. Uh, we wanted to know what their worldview was, and as they began to unpack their worldview of the things that they do in life day by day, even the simplicity of building a fire, roasting a sweet potato to eat, uh, everything had to do with manipulating spirits of dead ancestors. And they told us that they live in bondage and fear that the manipulation or the placating of these spirits of dead ancestors, they worried that they never please the spirits in the right manner. And I'm like, well, have you ever accomplished that? And they said, no. And I said, how do you know? They said, well, bad things happen to us all the time. Our, our people get old, they die. Our babies sometimes die in birth. Our houses fall down. Our gardens don't grow. Floods occur. All these are bad things as a result of us not placating the spirits in the right manner. So it's this vicious cycle of fear. And then they turned and they said to us, what do you do to please the spirits of your dead ancestor? And I kind of had to step back on that one. And I said, well, we don't, we don't have that practice. We don't believe that way. And they said, what do you do to dispel fear? Oh, boy. For us, a message came to us that delivered us from the bondage of fear. It was passed down generation after generation after generation. And they said, we want to know that message. And we said, we want to learn your language and come live among you so that we can do that, so we can declare that message to, to, uh, to you. And, of course, they gave us an open invitation to come there. Uh, we went into the jungle, we dropped trees, we cut timber, and uh, we built three houses, actually built one house out of three trees, and the most the government would allow us to give the people for it, we didn't pay it in cash, we paid it in trade goods, was about the equivalent of $20. So figure, putting three houses up like this for $20, of course, the equipment and things was more costly. But we said, if we're going to live here, we're going to need to build a means of, of getting in here. We just can't keep doing this hike. So we decided we'll build an airfield. So you begin to cut down trees, and you get all the trees cleared out of the way, and you call your pilot to fly over, and he says, you've got to take those tree stumps out. We're thinking, well, you're a gifted pilot. Of course, they can't land in tree stumps. So you work taking out the tree stumps, which is a lot of work, and uh, you end up with an airfield like this, and you have a means of getting in and out. So rather than that long hike, it's a 23-minute flight into the tribe. But what I really want to talk about here for the rest of our time is the first steps, learning language and culture. And I hope I can get this squeezed in in the amount of time that I have. But, you know, you guys are geniuses with your English language. You take these letters we call alphabets, and you string them together in words and sentences and phrases and paragraphs, and you can read it and make sense of it. Okay, I want to dig into a few elements of our English language just to show you how much of geniuses that you are. We best understand any concept, written or oral, in context of its expressive language. I put this comic up here. Um, this 
critter sitting on the elephant is saying, what do you want me to do? And the response from the other is no. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? It's out of context. I can say context matters, or I can say context matters. When I'm talking about matters of context, I say context matters. If I'm saying that it's an important issue with context, I say context matters. Let me step on from this. Okay, look at this in context. It says the bandage was wound around the wound. Is that what you read when you saw that? Or did any of you read that as the bandage was wound around the wound? No, in context of the bandage, you knew it was addressing a wound and that the bandage was wound. So you see, you are geniuses in being able to discern that. What about this? The farm was used to produce produce. Same word, used twice, spelled the same, carries different meaning. Again, context. Or how about this one? The soldier decided to desert his dessert in the desert. You see, you are, you are geniuses, aren't you? Really? Okay, look at this. Idiosyncrasies. I, I, I love these things that we have in the English language. We have eggplant, we have hamburger, and we have pineapple. There is no pine, there is no apple in a pineapple. There is no ham in a hamburger, unless you make it out of ham, okay? And there's no egg in an eggplant, and it's a, a, a fruit. It's not a plant. Look at this one, paradoxes. Items that contradict themselves, quicksand. I've been in quicksand that actually operates very slowly. You can get out of it. How about a boxing ring? Does that make sense? Why are they square, you know? I guess they have to have them square so they can say, go to your own corner, you know, when there's a knockdown. And then a guinea pig is neither a pig nor is it from guinea. How about this, making sense. If the plural of tooth is teeth, would the plural of booth be beef? If you leave here today and go to a restaurant, go in and tell them if it's a party of six, we would like to have a, a, a beef for six. And they'll look at you like you're crazy. Okay, here's one. Think about it. One goose, two geese. So if one moose, two meese. Oh, boy. Okay, I, I love playing with the English language. If teachers tr taught, why don't preachers prot? And if a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? Okay? Listen, this is your language, okay? This is your language. And people think our tribal languages are crazy. Okay. You know, English is a crazy language. It wasn't invented by computers. It was invented by the human race, which we know really isn't a race at all. Now, let me jump away from this for a moment and talk about unwritten languages because the majority of people groups that we go to, matter of fact, I don't know of any people group we've gone to that had an already written language. So what do you do when you have an unwritten language, when they, there are only oral speakers of that language? How are you going to engage ministry among them? Making sense of the sounds. This is a chart I put up of some of the characters in our language. I'm going to circle one. What is that letter? A. How do you say this word? I want audience response. How do you pronounce this? How many said Papa? Did anyone say Papa. Papa. Any say Papa or Papa? Okay, that letter phonetically is an ah. So both letters would be have to be pronounced as an ah. Papa. You got it. If you said Papa, you pronounce that second a as this character. You have that character in your alphabet. You have the sound. It makes the uh sound. 
So if you said pop a, uh, you would have to write it P A P in that little upside down V, which we call pup tent. Let me give you an example here. We have any golfers here? Any golfers? You go out on the green and what do you do? You putt. Now phonetically, a U is pronounced oo. So how would you say that word? Poot. I can tell you, I've never met a golfer who goes out on the green and poots. They putt. Okay, these are just some of the crazy nuances of the English language. This is a Greek epsilon. It has the eh, eh sound. And we find that sound in the word bet. You hear it in there? Eh, bet. But if we write the letter E phonetically, phonetically a letter E is pronounced A. So how would you say that? Bait, what we use when we go fishing. And then what about that sound? Do you have that in your English language? Looks like a question mark without the dot. It's called a glottal stop. And our language was loaded with these. And we find it in this word. Now, I want to quiz you. How many of you say mitten? Anyone say mitten? Or do you say mitten? We say mitten, don't we? If you say mitten, you hear that little stop in the middle of the word? You're actually stopping the air coming out of your mouth as you're saying that to say mitten. And you do, too, if you're also saying mitten, there's a, a, a faster stop. These are glottal stops. Our language was loaded with these things, okay, trying to make sense of this. Now, I'm going to give you a little test to do. For us, these consonants were very difficult to hear among our people. And not only were those difficult, we had 18 vowels in our language, nine said through the mouth, nine said through the nose. Now, I can tell you, if one of our Indians had a cold, it sounded like everything came out of their nose. But what I want you to do is hold your hand about an inch from your mouth, and I want you to say the letter B. Now, I'm going to have you say it again, and I want you to take particular notice to the puff of air that comes out, B. Now, say the letter P. Which one had the higher punch of air, the B or the P? The P. There were times with our ears we could not make that distinction, and I literally would walk up to somebody and put my hand right in front of Now, watch this. Okay, I'm going to make somebody real uncomfortable. Okay? Does that feel nice with me standing there? Okay, our Indians, it didn't matter to them. They, weren't, they thought we were weird anyhow. So for us to walk up and put our hand up in front of them when they're saying a word, you know, it was like, oh, that's what Americans must do. Okay? They didn't understand our culture. It was very strange things. But being able to listen to that language and to write it down and to make sense of it, you know, you could have a word that had nasalization in it, it might have six vowels. Two of them had nasalization on, and the other four did not. You could change that all around, put nasalization on a vowel that did not have it, and it would mean an entirely different thing. I remember one day my wife came in, and she's all frustrated. She's like, as ladies tell me, everywhere she goes, there's pigs. Well, we had wild boar pigs in the jungle, and they would domesticate them, but she's talking about stepping over pigs and walking in pigs, and I'm like, what? And we come to realize that the nasalization, she was not hearing it. And what the, actu the lady was actually talking about was all the rain that we had. Because there's a distinction in the wording for pig and a distinction in the word for rain, for water. So, yeah, some of the nuances that we had. Then culture. Culture is another element. As you are learning the language, you must learn the culture. You cannot learn an unwritten language without learning the culture. The two go hand in hand. As a kid, the only thing I knew of culture was when I went to the doctor with a sore throat 
and he'd take that long stick with a cotton swab and he'd rub it in the back of my throat. And then he would always pull it out and look at it and he'd always say, hmm. I never understood what that was. But that was my only experience with culture. I'm not talking about cultures as we know it that way. Culture is the behavior, beliefs, values, and symbols that are accepted generally without thinking about them that are passed on by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. So my picture of the Statue of Liberty and the American flag, what does that speak of to us? Patriotism. The silhouette of the Indians up there is in reference to American Indians. So these things make sense to us. They're part of our culture. Now, here are some characteristics of American culture. You can read them if you like. I'm not going to read them all. I did underline uh, some of them. We need lots of space, don't we? I mean, you were feeling uncomfortable with me standing that close to you. But these are things that we have learned, okay? What about pulling over uh, for allowing an ambulance to pass? On my way over here from York today on Route 30, there was an officer had a car pulled over, and immediately I knew to move out to the next lane, you know, to give him that space. Uh, how about when we go to a funeral, we have a party afterward? I mean, our, our tribal culture didn't do that. When we told them we have a, you know, we have a, a gathering for a meal afterward, they're like, why do you have a party after someone died? That didn't make sense to them. But you see, all of these actions in our American culture are based on educational rationale. As little kids, we learn these things coming up through right into our adulthood. Now, understanding worldview. We, again, worked among tribal people. We don't only work among tribals. We work among Hindus. We work among Buddhists. We work among Muslims in some of these areas. And, uh, but our, our desire was to understand the worldview of the people. It's one thing to know the language and the culture, but if you don't know the worldview of those people, you're going to have a very difficult time communicating biblical truth to them without knowing their worldview. And let me dig into that a little bit deeper. Okay, Tribal cultures are driven by fear-based thinking, just what I talked about when they were telling us how they had to placate the spirits of dead ancestors. Uh, and there's uh, deceit and lies through the animistic rituals. Let me just mention something about an item I have up here. I hope I didn't make any of you feel uncomfortable having these up here in my display. You know what that is? What would you call that? A statue? Okay, and in looking at that, in reference to tribal people, what do you think that statue actually is? An idol? Okay, let me tell you something. That is a piece of wood. That idol, okay, what they associate as an idol, is no different than the wood that the pews or the piano are made out of. But is, is the belief system, the worldview of those people that empower that to drive them into fear in living in fear of spirits and using things like this to placate spirits of dead ancestors. So, just so I didn't offend anyone bringing these in, these are wood, and again, they have no power, only what the deceit of the mind through Satan's lies bring to us. So that's the way it is among our tribal people being animistic in the worldview. And our people believe that spirits resided in everything. The trees, the rocks, the waterfalls, everything. So they believe that they had to placate these things in a specific manner. Okay? Here's another belief. Where did we come from? Where did we come from? There is a people group who believe they evolved from two birds. When we worked among the loco, they believed that they came from frogs. So you never hunted a frog, you never stepped on a frog. But for us, we realized that 
God formed man from the dust of the earth. We know that reading through the book of Genesis. I was among a people group in Mexico called the Tatamata Indians, and there, the Tatamata Indians, their worldview says that when the world was created, they believe that God and Satan co-created the world together. Is that true? Of course not. We have a biblical worldview. They do not. And in their worldview, in believing that God and Satan co-created the world together, they believe that God got all the good people. So if you're a Tatamata, who do you think the good people are? You are. And who do you think all the bad people are that the devil got? Everyone else outside of that. We had missionaries laboring among those people, and to break through that worldview took them almost 15 years. And that didn't happen until too many years ago in order to bring the truth of God's word to them. So these are difficult things, placating territorial spirits, a ritual that we saw going on all the time. The secret houses of sorcery, the deception. We have a video series called Etau. Wish, I wish I could show it to the church. But um, the women are led to believe that the spirits come down from the mountains and they have to be hunkered down in the dirt with their head buried under their arms and it's the men dancing around them doing a ritual and the women are led to believe that those are spirits. And of course, after these people came to faith in Christ, the women revealed that they were only playing their cultural role to stay alive as they had their heads buried. They could look under their arm and they could see the feet of the dancers and they would see scars or broken toes and they knew it was their own men. And they knew the deceitfulness of it. And that's how this darkened culture evolves. It is just out of such darkness. They're compliant. They live in fear. Look at that lady's hands. That lady has lost a child for every knuckle you see cut off of her hand. It's a ritual they go through. And this was done in the days before they had steel axes. They're using stone axes to whop off a finger. Why? Because they are so steeped in darkness, not knowing the truth of God that could liberate their hearts. And that's why we wanted to go minister among such people. Some of the cultural norms was our men had multiple wives. Think about that. After we had taught through the scriptures and we had believers, and now we're going to establish a church that needs leaders, where are we going to get leaders from if men have multiple wives? I was sharing with David on Friday as we were setting up the backdrop here that some of our elders were 14, 15, 16-year-olds that are very knowledgeable in the scriptures. But again, all this manipulation, this payback, the sorcery, all this spirit appeasement, those are things that we have to familiarize ourselves with within the culture, within the language, within the worldview in order to bring the gospel to them. And of course, as we're taking the time, working day in and day out, sometimes six days a week, long hours, it could be nine hours, it could be 14 hours a day, engaged in grasping an understanding of the language. As we're doing that, uh, we began to build relationships by teaching literacy. People said, why, why were you teaching them how to read and write? We said, well, eventually, God's word is going to be translated into their language, so they need to have that ability. And then taking care of their medical needs with a clinic. We had very limited medical training, but there were things that we specifically could do uh, to enhance their wellness, because if you're going to preach the gospel, you need warm, live bodies. So we reached out in that manner. Uh, let me just conclude here. <clears throat> it's in this cultural context that we face hardships in order to bring the truth of God's word to ones with such a worldview. Why? Because we want to bring them a comprehensible understanding of the gospel. David, let me ask you a question. 
I have a 10-minute video. I have four minutes. Can we show it? If anyone needs to leave, please get up and leave. I do want you to know that tomorrow evening I'm going to springboard from this and show you the impact of declaring the gospel in a specific manner. I want to look at the necessity of, of uh, communicating God's word in an effective manner. It links with what I'm doing today. But let me end with this little video. I think that will help bring you into a better understanding of the things I just talked about. I am Moe, like my father and my grandfather before me. Even long ago, our ancestors lived on this land. people, but we die quickly. The spirits eat us. They control everything, what we eat, what we hunt, where we build our houses. The spirits watch us. We hear them in the wind. They control the night. They send centipedes like arrows to bite and kill us. They demand that we kill. My cousin committed adultery. The spirits were angry. So his wife's family killed him. Still, my family had to be compensated for his death. Her family tried to pay with shell money. It was not enough. satisfied the debt. A death for a death. This is the way we Moy people live. We make our gardens. We hunt. We build our houses. Spirits watch us.
One day, a new voice in the wind terrified me. I ran to see what it was, and I hid. Strangers, men like me, or spirits here to eat us. My people invited the strangers to live among us. Years passed, and they learned to speak our language. They learned about our ways. Still, I wondered, are they men or spirits? The strangers shared the Creator's talk. A few Moy people listened. I did not. I overheard them say, the Creator is more powerful than all the spirits. I thought, this is lying talk. When some of the Moi people heard the Creator's talk, their hearts became different. At our feasts, they weren't afraid to break the spirit's rules. They hunted whatever they wanted. They weren't even afraid of eating taboo food. I told them, you will soon die for this. Death is small, they told me. The Creator's talk is big. I thought, is this really lying talk? I didn't know. I wondered what the spirits would do. When the centipede bit me, I knew the spirits were angry. My family slashed me to get rid of the bad blood. But the sickness grew bigger and bigger. So they killed a pig, but still the spirits were not satisfied. I was dying. Then they came. The Moy who believed the Creator's talk came through the night with medicine. They came through the night to save me. Why weren't they afraid of the darkness? Why didn't they fear the spirits? Each day for many months, I listened to the Creator's story. I saw my own sin. 
was awestruck. The Creator's talk is powerful. Slowly, the truth began to dawn. People who do not know the Creator. People who have never heard that Jesus died for them. Who will tell them? Pretty stark reality, isn't it? You know, I said, where there is no revelation of truth, people cast off restraint. And I can't help but think how many people have had no restraint, had, have had no revelation of truth, even to this day, that are waiting for someone to bring them the truth of the gospel. And we're seeing young men, young women, families step out. We've got about 200 in training right now who are purposing to do that. And we know, just as was shared in the message this morning, God's going to be with them. God's going to make provision. He's going to give them the ability to do this work. And we believe that we can complete this task probably in the next 30 years, but it's going to be up to the next generation to follow. What I produced for you here this morning, I just put in this little um, summary, is what it takes to get established in a church planning effort. But uh, tomorrow night, what I want to do is... Uh, let me move on here, is looking at how do you do that? How do you communicate that message? We're going to examine the gospel. We're going to look at some very practical things. We're going to look at some very stimulating things. And I'm going to get to involve you uh, in a little activity. Uh, it'll be a volunteer basis, but I think it'll be very enlightening for you. So I would invite you to come join us tomorrow night for that time together. I'm going to give it back to David. Thank you for your attention and for allowing me to go over. Thank you. Who will tell them? Will it be some of us? And who will send them? Will it be us? We uh, introduced two new people to you today. 
Tonight we will be having some of our familiar faces to speak to us. Come back tonight, 7 o'clock, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, 7 o'clock, and then again Saturday and Sunday. You're dismissed.